0: And we're on, and welcome to Flat Out Recovery. And this week, I'm talking to Casey from Addiction of the Family podcast. And we're talking across the waves. I love doing this, talking to people in other countries, because I'm a bit averse to the whole computer thing, so I didn't grow up with it. And this idea that I can look at a machine and talk to someone who's thousands of miles away at a different time of day is really quite remarkable to me. So welcome anyway. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we're always eager to talk to other podcasters. For me, that's the way I learn sometimes, is to talk to other people that are doing the same thing. How did you come to the decision to start
1: a podcast? What drew you to it? Yeah, (laughs) Well, it all goes back to the Big Bang. Ah. (laughs) Ah! So, In a way, you could say it starts with generations of addiction within my family, both in my birth family and also some in my adoptive family. So I was born into a family with addiction issues of one kind, some around alcohol and other drugs, some around sex and love addiction. I'm sure there's other things as well, but not very openly spoke of. So I'm sure there's a lot of facets I don't know. So I was raised in that family until about two and a half years old. And then I was adopted into a new family. New family, you know, interviewing two-year-olds decides I look like a good fit now. Knowing (laughs) what I know now, I would say, yeah, I had already taken on some of those patterns and gotten used to some of the chaos and all the things happening in my life. So I probably just had that look in my eyes as a two-year-old. So I get adopted into a new family where my father has problems with alcohol. And this is one of the organizing principles of the family. So fast forward to about age 19, and I move out of the house, go into university, and I'm babysitting for this couple because that was something I'd gotten in the habit of doing in high school. So when I graduated, I was offered this job, you know, room and part of your board, live-in care kind of thing for our three kids. So the parents are off doing their thing. The kids are asleep, and I'm looking on the bookshelf, just kind of wandering, and I run across this book saying, here's some things you might run into if you grew up in a family with alcoholism. <laughs> I didn't know books like that existed, it's like, no. wow, there's actually information about this stuff. So fast forward years and years, I've gotten into addiction deeper and deeper myself. I get into recovery around 30 years old. That would be 23 years ago now. And over time, in my recovery, I sort of fall into, or depending who you would talk to, maybe higher power thing. I don't know. I end up working in the recovery field myself, and I was in the field for about six months. You know, waking people up, getting the medications, getting into groups, conducting some groups, and I get called into the office with the boss, and I'm like, uh oh, what's this about? And he says, we think you should go back to school and be a counselor. And I said, you know, I've gone to school a bunch of times for different things. Nothing's ever worked out. I don't know. <laughs> And he said the magic words, we'll pay for half. I was like, "Ah, right. well, that does change the equation. So I went home and talked with my wife and she says, well, I don't know. You've gone to school a bunch of time for different things. It's never worked out. I said, yeah, but they're paying for half. She's like, "Okay, we kind of got to do this. I'm like, "Okay, yeah. So I went back to school and I got my associates in chemical dependency counseling and then a bachelor's in chemical dependency counseling and then master's in social work. And so here I am all these years later, I'm a clinical social worker. Well, along the way at least a year or two into working at that treatment center, they said, we'd like you to sit in on a family workshop and see what it's like, see what happens when the families come in. This was like a nine month to year long treatment center, which so it's unusually long treatment. And so every three months, the families would fly in from wherever they lived, because we took people from all over the, the United States and occasionally internationally, we have a client come in from Germany, this kind of thing. And I sat in on this family workshop, And I was blown away. It was almost like picking that book up all over again, just like, wow, watching what happens when families get involved in recovery. And I was listening to the message that was being delivered. I mean, I was just supposed to sit in the back not say anything, so I'm just watching this happen. But this light bulb came on and I thought, I wanna do this work. What does it take to do this? And there I was, I was in school, and so one day they said, well, the co-facilitator's leaving, we want you to become the co-facilitator, so you're gonna be second in command. The other person doing it is Batman. You're Robin. Like, don't get that confused. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So I'm just going to sit there quietly observe, but occasionally throw in a question. And so I do that for a while, probably a year or two. And then one day they said, the facilitators leaving, you're the facilitator now and go. So that weekend had three families flying in and did the thing and I loved it. And so I did that at the treatment center for a while. And people would occasionally say, so when are you going to write a book? I'm like, yeah, funny, whatever. (laughs) Um, I just kind of keep rolling. But eventually when I finished all my studies and I'd been out of school for a couple years, I thought maybe I should write a book. What am I going to write about? I thought, of course, working with families, because I saw that one book when I was 19. But since then, I hadn't run into a lot of books that were saying what I thought families needed to hear there's a lot of memoirs which I think are great you can learn a lot from them you know my son's year in recovery and this sort of thing or what I did when my brother spun out of control but I was looking for just a hands-on nuts and bolts here's what treatment looks like here's what they mean when they say sober living should you see a doctor what's a recovery coach should you go to recovery fellowships what do you expect when you get all those kinds of things and then how do you talk to your loved one how do you set boundaries all those kinds of things so I endeavored to start writing a book. And I thought, well, so I'm going to write this book. Maybe I should look for a publisher. So I start looking at publishers. And the publishers these days, at least so far, all said, what are you going to do to publicize the book? My first thought was, I thought that was your job. I'm writing a book. We publicize. That's a whole different skill set, man. Like, well, how do you do that? So I had this thought like okay well if I got to publicize it I guess I got to go out and do interviews and I'm thinking like you know it's a year and a half two years in the future someday I'm gonna have to do these interviews and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I thought oh no I don't need to just be on podcasts I need to be the host of a podcast and so that's the long involved story of how the podcast happened was sort of advanced promotion for the book and initially I would just open up like a chapter I was working on and read it. And that would be that podcast episode. Then I started interviewing people and then I picked someone else's book up that I really liked. And so I thought, man, I want to get this person to come And Late last year, I did in fact publish the book. So it's been out for three or four months now, which is great. But the podcast continues to be an ongoing thing that I absolutely love doing just for its own sake.
0: It sounds to really me like a very logical cycle, though, that you've been through to get from where you were in the first place to get to the
1: podcast. Well, you know, like so many things, it sounds really logical in hindsight. Yeah, but not at the time. Right. But you know, if you had walked up to me at 19 and said, "Well, here's what's going to happen. So check it out." So in 30 years, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I would have said, "Like, what are you talking about? A podcast? I mean, it didn't exist at the time." And be like, "Well, it's kind of like a radio show, but on computers." And I'd be like, "Computers can do that." So there was no way back then to visualize what was happening now. But to some extent, it is almost like the completion of that circle in that I finally was able to create a book that I would have wanted to be able to hand to myself. Because someone had been able to say, hey, here's this book you can read when I was, say, 15 and still living in that house and going through all the drama. And my dad's drinking was getting worse and worse because his company was tanking. Mm -hmm. So he was spinning farther and farther out of control. And. As people often do in addiction, he was taking it out on the family. And so if someone had been able to say, hey, here's this book, read this, and you can at least understand what's happening and what you can and can't do in that situation. Like, don't bother trying to get him sober, because when I grew up, like, that was part of my mission. Like, I didn't have any eyes on the idea that I might be falling into addiction, which by that time I thoroughly was. I just didn't know it. Of course, we're blind. I didn't recognize it.
0: Yeah.
1: But – I was still thinking like, man, if I could just get my dad sober, if he was the identified patient in the family. I would know that terminology. Now, if he got sober, we'd all be fine. And now working with families, I could look back and say, well, kid, that's an honorable thing to think. But it's also not true. I suppose it's that age old
0: thing. Of, what would I say to my 15 year old self? What would I say to my 18 year old self? I don't think, well, hang on. My 18 year old self wouldn't believe me. So writing a guidebook
1: for my 18-year-old self and my 15-year-old self. Yeah, that would have helped me. I wasn't listening to a lot of 50-something guys for advice at that point, but I could pick up a book and pick it up and go like, oh, yeah, this matches my experience. And so maybe this person knows what they're talking about. And so that's my hope for the podcast and the book. And all the work that I do is kind of my mission is I work with people who have addiction every day, day in, day out. That's part of my life mission. But I've also taken on this idea of, working with the family members, who I think are vastly underserved and under supported. Yes. And often don't even know they need support. Like it hasn't crossed and their mind. We come across that. And while I've
0: done some interviews with family members, I want to do more. I have other lives outside recovery and I'm gonna have uh, what I do in the theater. I have various other things I do. And I do come across hopelessly frustrated people who are dealing with an alcoholic or an addict at home They don't even have the language to articulate what's happening. They can't even talk about why is this happening to me? It's just total inertia and being frustrated at not understanding why this person that they're in love with, that they've been with for 20 years, is behaving the way that they are.
1: Yeah. And I will say, like I said, it's a different skill set. So I'm learning to promote, you know, hey, there's this book. All this kind of stuff, but I'm also a little self conscious about it. That's one thing mm-hmm. to write it, it's another thing to present it in person. It's yet another thing to say, hey, get this book. But one of yes. the more gratifying experiences that I've had, because I run a family workshop every weekend through the treatment center that I work at, Windmill Wellness Ranch in Canyon Lake, Texas. I love it there. And it was the first place to just give me complete carte blanche and just say, Here, you build a family workshop from scratch. We had one a few months ago, didn't really go anywhere. If you got any ideas, I'm like, I do. I have this idea of how I want to build it. So I've gotten to build it from the ground up. And one of the really gratifying things is getting to see people come back week after week. And right now, of course, for the last couple of years, it's been all online. Um, And so we use Zoom. It's an online platform. People are coming in. We have people whose loved ones went through the treatment center a year, year and a half ago. They're still showing up to the family workshop. And so I love this. And one of the more gratifying things is people will show up and it's really sweet. They'll go like, hey, I got the book. And hey, I finally understand why my loved one lies to me. And I don't take it personally anymore. And I'm like, touchdown. That was it. That was goal. <laughs> that's, that's all I would have hoped for in writing the book is that someone can say, this helped me to understand my loved one. And now I don't take it personally. We're not in that same kind of conflict. But I'm also learning to set boundaries. So I don't put up with further dishonesty. It's not saying, okay, you're off the hook. It's fine to lie all the time. But it is saying that I don't have to take it personally and think, how could my loved one do this to me? And that balance is hard to strike. And so hearing people say, hey, I read this thing, and it brought peace to my heart. And and of course, I wrote it for family members, but I'm thrilled that I'm getting a good response also from people who have addiction themselves who will pick it up and say hey I read the thing on addiction in the brain and I finally get that although I got sober from meth this is why I'm eating the way I am as compulsively and saying oh it's that same part of the brain and I'm like yes that's it again goal that's what I was shooting for it's been very gratifying so far just to hear that it is in fact helping people do
0: you think that in any treatment environment, it ought to be the way that we run family workshops as much as we run workshops for the addict and alcoholic in as much as we can.
1: In as much as we can. I would say what I found has worked really well for me is to do a weekly workshop. So a client who's in treatment, they're going to group many times a day. typically. Just three months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're doing that. I would say in my experience, there's probably going to be the occasional family member who will go to a meeting every day, but mm. it's pretty rare. But if I can get a family that member to go great. to well, yeah, one or two meetings a week, you know, absolutely. And so we schedule ours on a Saturday morning. And so when I signed on with the treatment center, well, you know, if you do the family workshop thing you're talking about, you're going to be here every Saturday. I'm like, that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> My child is grown. It's totally fine. This is what I'm signing up for because a lot of family members can make it on a Saturday morning. Yes. And so kind of setting it up. What's a time that they can do it? that's going to make sense for them. Doing the online thing was like the literally improvisation. We're running it in person. And then one day my boss comes and says, hey, there's this thing, COVID and clamping everything down. You're going online this weekend. I'm like, "Okay, that's what we're doing. So let's do that. And it was very much at first me sitting with a laptop in my lap and just, you know, pointing it at each client as they spoke to their families and stuff like that. But what happened that first weekend is you know we're down in Texas and so we had a client who had come in from oh, I forget somewhere uh, somewhere on the East Coast and his parents showed up for the family workshop That's a long way And we went yeah well here's the thing cuz it was online they could just pop on So yeah so they're you know halfway across the country they there's no way they ever would have showed up in person if we were only doing the in-person workshop And so we finished that very first day and I went to my boss and said check it out this family came in from north carolina we need to keep an online presence even when we go back to open the treatment center up to families coming in and visitation all that there needs to be this online component i don't even know what that's going to look like and she went oh wow yeah so-and-so's family came in man there's so much conflict in that family we need to do some kind of thing and so i'm very fortunate. I mean, again, you know, in the United States, is all kinds of levels of treatment, everything from, you know, some like the Salvation Army, serving homeless people who have no resources, all the way up to what some people would call like mint on the pillow kind of treatment, where everything is taken care of, spa days every day, all this kind of stuff. And in there, there's treatment. The place I'm at right now is sort of in the middle, maybe nudging a little bit towards the higher end. So within that context... I'm able to say things like, hey, you know, I've got three laptops set up. I've got cameras, microphones, all this kind of stuff. And one day she comes in and says, hey, I bought this system. So it's dedicated for this. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. So now I have big screen TV where the clients can see their families and I have microphones and all camera where I can zoom in and out and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to, you know, even if they couldn't see each other, just putting a microphone in the middle of the room and saying, "Okay, let's talk so you can hear your families. And I've been to some treatment centers, I've gotten to tour treatment centers you know, out in Florida that are overlooked the bay and the lights, and you know, the, the executive director is saying, hey, look at this food our chef prepares. And, and I'm thinking like, wow, this is a beautiful setting, and wow, that's great food. But at the end of the day, you gotta sit in a circle of chairs and yeah. talk. And either yeah. that's top notch or it's not, and that's gonna tell you whether or not you have a great treatment center, is, is what happens when everybody sits down and starts talking because that's gonna be the same to some extent, no matter where you go, it's all gonna well, come we, down. To- we
0: have that over here as well. We don't have many places now that do charity beds, but we're about to open a detox at changes, which will have some charity beds. But we're at the lower end cost-wise. There are places that are much more expensive. And also a lot of those places, well certainly my experience of what I've seen over here is that they will take the money and the effect of how much you sit in the room isn't so important. And while I think technology has actually proved very beneficial in the last couple of years, certainly in terms of my contact with AA, which I couldn't have had during lockdown had I not had a computer, for example. And also with what you say about families, there are some families that wouldn't come
1: no matter what, but might try it on Zoom. Absolutely. Some of the recovery fellowship meetings that I go to now, I started one with I'd say sort of like a friend online, but someone I've literally never met in person, you know, only know each other through phone calls and then Zoom calls. And so we start a recovery fellowship meeting. And within a few months, other people run, you know, I I get on there and, you know, the person sharing the meeting is in Poland. I'm over here in Texas. We've got several people from London signing on. Our speaker is in Africa. And I'm just thinking, like, this is the coolest thing ever. When I came into recovery in a a smallish suburb of Los Angeles. There was a little bit isolated, sort of the northern tip of Los Angeles County. So nowhere near as populous as you think of for like, you know, the second biggest city in the United States. So it had a little bit of a small town feel, sort of small town, but attached to a big city. Mm. Lots of people commuted in and out of Los Angeles, and yet they still had a sort of insular feel up here. And so I go to my first recovery meetings and People are all kind of eyeing each other sideways a little bit because it's a small enough town that everybody knows each other's business and nobody wants to be known that they go to this meeting and all this kind of stuff that that was unfortunately my first introduction. I mean, hey, it was sure better than nothing, but it was kind of that. And it, same sort of thing, you know, 20 some years ago, if someone had walked in and said, hey, by the way, just so you know, in like 20 years, we're going to be doing meetings with people all over the world showing up at the same meeting. I think I would have said. Well, that's really cool. How do you do that? And they would said through a computer and be like, "Oh, computers can do that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> like,
1: look in it? the future, which really makes me think, like so fast forward another twenty years, what does recovery look like? Who knows? But there's no doubt that the pandemic has really shifted so yeah. much recovery online, even if it's just telephone meetings, but all kinds of online video meetings where I really feel connected in recovery to people all over the place. I've sponsored people all over the place. I've been on recovery outreach calls where, again, one person's in England, one person's the United States, one person's in Thailand, and we're all getting together to help somebody get through a situation. And just thinking, how incredibly wonderful is that?
0: Well, there is a global language to it, isn't there? Once I'm living a life in recovery, then I can talk about
1: recovery to anyone, anywhere one of the jokes that i loved about that i went to a meeting in boston because i had gone online and got my degree in boston i'd never actually been to boston so i went for the graduation my one and only trip to boston i'm going to show up for the graduation and so while i was there I hit a couple meetings because partly i like to hit meetings and it's really really good for me and it's always cool in a new place and i showed up so i'm coming from texas but i grew up in los angeles and there's another guy there who grew up somewhere else but is coming from los angeles we meet at this meeting in Boston and we start chatting and he says isn't it great to go to recovery meetings he says it's the only place you can go meet complete strangers and start reminiscing <laughs> I thought yeah right on the money Absolutely
0: yeah what we really hope for when we do our stuff is that we're going to hear from someone who says that's exactly where I am right now or that's exactly what's happening this is what I'm experiencing at least someone else actually knows and I think with the carrying of the message, however you do it, whether it's through a book, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a meeting, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook, wherever it is, it's that identification with experience. And I think that certainly in terms of what I see and hear over here, I think that is something that family members and partners and children are not necessarily finding so readily at the moment in the UK.
1: It's I mean, partly, I think it's just educating people that it exists. Yes. Right. So every time I do the family workshop now, I've just got a little cut and paste thing that I throw into the chat saying, here's a list of family recovery fellowships. So Al-Anon, that's the great grandmother of them all, basically forming side by side with Alcoholics Anonymous at a time when neither one of those organizations had names. So yeah. I call it Anonymous Incorporated first and Al-Anon quite a few years later. But the reality is, is they were starting at the same time. Mm. Family members just discovering the same thing you're saying. If I'm talking with someone else who's been through this experience or going through it, yeah. they understand me better. And so the, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but sort of the apocryphal story is that between some of the wives hanging out in the kitchen while their husbands were in the living room doing a meeting and or driving their husbands to yeah. – see other alcoholics. And I don't know if that's because, you know, a lot of people with alcohol problems lose their driver's license or what. But in any case, so the wives are driving them around and, you know, they're talking amongst themselves and made this spectacular discovery. If we do our recovery the same way at the time it would have been our husbands are doing their recovery, like we do the same sort of things. We're learning and growing. We're getting relief. And that relief is no longer based on whether or not the alcoholic stops drinking. That's a huge leap. It's just the assumption that we need this person to get sober to be okay, and along comes the discovery, no, we don't, and being able to spread the word. So that's how Al-Anon starts, and then from that, lots of other 12-step recovery fellowships like Codependence Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics, Al-Anon spawned Alateen, which was some teenagers just starting by themselves saying, we're going to Al-Anon meetings, but I don't want to hear about somebody's like, I'm tired of hearing about your husband. I want to talk about my parents. So Mm -hmm. they start their own group which is officially part of Alanon. So you had Alaton, Alateen, Codependence Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics, and then other people come along and say, well, we like the 12-step model, but it doesn't fit everybody. They start Smart Recovery, and there's, I think, yeah. before that, Rational Recovery, but that's kind of mostly moved over into Smart. So Smart Recovery, yeah, most people have never even heard of that. Well, for all the people that haven't heard of Smart Recovery, even fewer know that there's a, an analogous group called Smart Recovery Family and Friends. They have their own workbook, Now, if you've gone to a bunch of Al-Anon meetings and you open up the smart recovery workbook, you're going to see a lot of like cognitive behavior therapy, exercise, stuff like that. But you're really going to hear the exact same message, which is you can't get your loved one sober. You're not going to fix it for them. Why don't you try working on you instead? And I've had any number of family members say, why why do I need to go to those meetings? You know, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm not the (laughs) one with the problem. And I'm like, try a few. Humor me because you're going to feel better. You're not going for them. You're going for you. And so getting family members to just recognize that that exists for them, that there is relief, that there's people who know what this is like, that's half the battle.
0: One of the things I had to recognize in the process of recovery was how ill I'd made the people around me. And also knowing that I can't necessarily do anything about that other than do the next best thing now. Mm -hmm. But whether they come to the understanding of realizing that they were ill too, if something is there for them to do that, then good. And I don't actually know if some of the people I affected have access to something like that or not. I suspect that some of them have, but I've no way of really knowing. Because obviously it's not something that we talk about directly. And that's just the way it's happened for me. It doesn't necessarily happen that way for everyone. Yeah. But it's the acknowledgement that I had to have it as an alcoholic, that I had ram raided through an awful lot of people's lives. And okay, the ones from 30 years ago, 20 years ago, probably forgotten I existed, but the ones who've been there all along haven't been able to do that. And I think it comes to me more and more as I go on in recovery, that when we work in this treatment center and we work with these people who come in week in, week out, some of them who are hell bent on just proving to their family they're not ill and are leaving, and some of them who are so close-minded, you think, why are you bothering to be here? And we see those that are desperate who will do anything, and they're the ones that make it every time. And yet in all of this, sometimes we forget how many people they've affected on the way in because we're just looking at the addict as they walk through the door.
1: The research, I'm a big research geek, the research shows that someone with an addiction affects at least two degrees of separation out. So there's all the people directly around you and then all the people directly around them who you're never going to meet but who still got affected by the addiction. And so one of my pieces of hope is that recovery can do the same thing. People don't do as much research around that, but I have every reason to believe that in the same way, someone in recovery can positively affect all the people around them who can then positively affect all the people around them who you're still never gonna meet. And so that basic recognition that, hey, if you are close to someone in a loving relationship who has an addiction, you have been affected, and you deserve to recover from those effects but most of us did not invent this from scratch there's been generations often if i talk to someone who says i married three alcoholics in a row i could say wow what a coincidence or i could say so let's talk about your family history oh yeah well my dad i never saw my parents touch a drop of alcohol how come they decided to never drink at all ever well, you know, his dad, my dad's dad was an alcoholic. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, those family patterns, the addiction may skip a generation or two, yeah. but the family patterns don't. Those family patterns get modeled and passed down sometimes explicitly with someone saying and sometimes implicitly just watching behavior. When I hear people say, oh, we don't air our dirty laundry out in the street, I think like, show me that family and I will show you some addiction. Someone was taught, don't talk about it.
0: Yes. I have a bit of an echo of this in my own story because some 30 years ago, I was, I was a bit of a serial monogamist and I was with a girl at one point who was hell-bent on reminding me that I reminded her of her dad mm-hmm. and that I was going the same way. And she quite sensibly detached. Yeah. And I never understood why until I sobered up that she was actually looking at the very same pattern as someone she couldn't help and was there for seeing someone else she couldn't help and wasn't prepared to go through
1: that again. Yeah, I think you're modeling, like, yeah, you said some wisdom, learning from her experience, and yet I also have to look and say, out of three billion-some men on Earth, she had still gravitated towards you. Mm. Someone who had those same patterns as an adult, you could look and say, oh, but I would also be willing to bet good money that you were not the first or last person who had those tendencies that she would gravitate towards because we tend to go towards what we know, even if we don't like it. And so that's how some of these patterns just keep getting perpetuated. My wife and I were in our active addiction together for 10 years and never would have thought it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, When I listened to your podcast, I was absolutely blown away thinking, 10 years? They did this for 10 years and didn't notice?
1: Well, you know, for one thing, we had both been raised in families where you learn to hide things really well. So there was that. There was also the fact that my primary addiction is sex and love addiction. And so the drinking that I did facilitated that. Her primary addiction was food addiction, but she was also thoroughly into sex and love addiction. Our sex and love addiction just fed itself. We just came off like this sweet lovey dovey couple who just wanted to be together all the time we rearranged our work schedules so that we were together all the time oh, and yet stifling I, it, well we had a therapist at the time who said the exact same thing she said you know i have this vision for you where you live a life where you go each of their separate ways and do your thing and then you come back together and you share the experiences you've had and i remember thinking i don't want that <laughs> you know and yet today that's our life we go and do things and then we come back together if we go to a party now we tend to split up like she'll go one direction i'll go another direction because we can cover more of the room and on the way home we'd be like oh how's so-and-so doing great okay and we can catch up but early on i wouldn't have let her out of my sight unless i had found some other prospect in the room that i was trying to seduce and so we were this super sick stifling codependent couple, and yet at the same time, we were constantly falling in love with other people, being seductive towards other people, all this kind of stuff. And I wonder, same sort of thing, if someone had come along at 20 years old when I first got married and said, hey, by the way, there's this thing called sex and love addiction. If they'd even suggested that it existed, could I have heard it? And my guess is no, because that first therapist who was saying that about once a year would bring it up in a session oh i met this guy in sex addiction blah, 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 and real compulsive and you know white knuckling and all this kind of stuff and i would go huh, oh that's kind of interesting huh well in any case that doesn't apply to me i could not see the connection and like a good therapist she wasn't saying you need to blah 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 well the second really good therapist i saw i was showing up for well kind of for these issues i knew i was going to ruin my marriage if i didn't do something but i wasn't thinking i needed to change i was actually going for advice on basically how to cheat on my wife and not lose her yeah so I was going to a therapist to find out like yeah. hey can you on give my me some terms. tips yeah right exactly can you give me some tips on how to do this and she said have you ever heard of sex addiction and i'm like uh no i literally have not which when i look back is not true i had heard of it i just blew it off every time so I got into recovery 10 years into our marriage and then I figured out I needed to stop drinking if I was going to stay sober in sex and love addiction because all it took was one sip of alcohol and my brain was off and running, as alcoholists want to do. And then later I figured out I needed to join a program around family relationships for people that have grown up around addiction and alcoholism. And then later I joined a group around money and like I just found I was talking with someone about this yesterday who's kind of new to recovery and and they said, is there like a recovery group for everything said, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we live in a blessed time where yeah. whatever the issue is. But yeah, so through all of that, I think if we had been shooting heroin together for 10 years, like it would have fallen apart probably faster and more obviously. But I will say that a lot of marriages would have spun completely out of control and dissolved with doing exactly what we were doing yeah. if we hadn't been so kind of addicted to each other. I think it would have either come to light or fallen apart much faster. But luck, fate, a lot of therapy, and then adding recovery into the mix. I like to tell people we've been married 32 years now. Of our marriage thanks to recovery groups and all the stuff we've been taught.
0: It's a heck of a thing to recover together, I suppose, as well.
1: Yeah, it's been a fantastic experience. Very difficult at times. The first three years of recovery, I was the only one in recovery it didn't cross my mind my wife's mind at all that she needed recovery for anything in fact i was surprised when she came in the door one day and said i need to join a group too and i'm like okay what am i going to say no that's fantastic go for it of course but i was still kind of surprised because same sort of thing i was not looking to see Does anyone else in my family have any issues they need to work on? I was just looking at myself as the identified patient. The guy with the problem, if I get it together, everyone else is better. Things were certainly better with me in recovery than me not in recovery, hands down. But when she got in recovery, then we had the opportunity to speak more of a common language, which was helpful. Yeah. It also moved it more from I'm down in the ditch, you're up on the pedestal, to, okay, we're two human beings just on the ground. We can see a little more eye to eye. and. We've had to learn some good boundaries around recovery. You know, when one person's in recovery and then their spouse or their child or family member, you know, gets in recovery a few years later, it can be easy to step into that. Oh, I will be your sponsor. Not literally. Mm -hmm. Like I was smart enough to know I couldn't literally do that. But I also, you know, it's tempting to offer a lot of advice and let me show my experience strength and hope because all of a sudden I'm not just the identified patient. I'm the guy who has recovery experience. Well, I would figure out really quickly that that's not going to work. <laughs> like, her recovery has to be hers, mine is mine, and kind of set some limits and boundaries around that. We do go to meetings together sometimes, but like, no feedback ever on what somebody shared in a meeting. We also really make sure we have meetings of our own, where you yes. know, I'm going to go after my meeting, she's going to go after her meeting, and never the twain shall meet because we each have to have that space as well. I've talked to people who have said, I remember when I was first joined the program around money, I was working on that. And I uh, had this guy who I was kind of not really even co-sponsoring. We were just talking with each other regularly. And one day he gets on the phone. He says, yeah, my girlfriend told me I need to quit the program. And then he quit the program. And I was like, wow, that could be my reality. Yeah. Uh, and I was working with another guy where I was helping him out. And every time I talked to him, he would mention like, Yeah, I'm cleaning my act act up around money, but my wife is spending completely wildly out of control. So no matter what I try and do, she's going to find a way to undermine it. And I've known an awful lot of people whose partners, spouses, family members are saying, yeah, you go get better and come back fixed. And so I'm very blessed to be with somebody who is willing to look at themselves. This idea
0: of you go away and you get fixed, you you do this, you get fixed and everything's going to be fine. I've noticed in various things around me in the course of recovery that my getting fixed doesn't necessarily have this marvelous effect on everybody else, whereby everything's suddenly sweetness and light. We're all going down the yellow brick road together.
1: And sometimes family members are not sure what to do when somebody gets healthy, even if they've been begging for it. Absolutely. Like, who am I now that you're not holding the crazy card? <laughs> like, now what do I do? And I keep trying yes, to I hand you the crazy card, you won't now. take it. It's stuck in my hand. Now what do I It's like playing hot potato yeah. recovery. So <laughs> instead of that, yeah, that is one of the many reasons why I make such a big deal out of working with families and trying to get them to look at their own recovery for their own sake, not because it's going to get your loved one sober or make their lives better, because it's going to make your life better to work on yourself.
0: I think it's really important. and. I think it's something that perhaps over here we're not saying enough. Says he knowing that there are various things that treatment centers don't necessarily do with families that are along the lines of what you're describing.
1: Yeah, I was saddened. I worked at three different treatment centers and the first one closed down. So that was that. The second one, though, I knew I was going to leave and I had been co-facilitating with someone for a while who was just getting their counseling license and, you know, kind of getting their feet on the ground. and, And so they were a natural with doing the family work. And so I did my best to sort of train them up before I left to make sure, hey, this is gonna be in good hands. And I think I was gone about a month or two and I touched base and said, hey, how's it going? And she goes, oh, well, they shut down the family program. I'm like, what? <laughs> Ow. I said, the clinical director is, I kid you not, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Like, how can you have that as your degree and license and decide you don't need the yeah. family program? Said, well, the executive director over their head said, well, yeah, it's taking up too much time. We need a counselor over here. And then COVID hit. And then and I think each month they say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, pretty soon we're going to start that back up. And I'm like, oh, pretty soon tomorrow. I mean. You know, for every client you have in there, there's probably like five family members who could really use some recovery help. So we're cheating 150, 200 people a month, potentially, out of their own recovery. Uh, it maybe put a little strongly cheating, but certainly we are missing an opportunity.
0: I can't believe what time it is. Time
1: pollutes. We're having fun.
0: <laughs> well, time just goes, doesn't it? When it it's, does. This is something that I couldn't cope with when I was drunk. Time was, was this expandable force that never went the way I wanted it to. Sure. But when I'm actually focused and doing things sober, time can just go just like that. Especially when I'm doing something that I like doing. Makes a big difference. For me, one of the things about the podcasting, one of the reasons why I keep doing it week in, week out is because I like doing it. It's not just because it's important, but yeah. I like doing it for me as well.
1: Yeah, it's a real sense of gratification every time I finish Oh, yeah, it. absolutely.
0: Yeah. And also knowing that it's helping people, too, is, is another great motivator.
1: We will have you on again. At some oh, point. I'd love to. If I may, let me do the official plug. So my name is Casey yeah. Arriaga. Yes, please do. Spell that. C-A-S-E-Y. Last name A-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-A. And I'm the author of a book called Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. All the websites and places, both as an ebook and paperback, whatever suits you best. The podcast is called Addiction and the Family and can be found at addictionandthefamily.info, i-n-f-o like information.
0: And um, I have listened to this okay. and I recommend it to any family member.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: With what I do because when people ask me, I'm not sure what to recommend,
1: <laughs> so I've got yours to recommend <laughs> anyway. Well, that's even fair. if I can't think of anything else. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well. Do me a favor. Yeah, recommend the book as well, much. and we'll get families some resources and get them some help. That's what and it's thank all. Thank you about. very much for coming on, and we'll see <laughs> you again soon. Right. I would love to. Thank you so much. Cheers. Right. Cheers.